The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Caleb Benjamin, Internet Lawfare, with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for October 9th, 2023. This week, the U.S. District Court for the District of Montana will hold a hearing on TikTok's request for a preliminary injunction in its suit against the state of Montana. TikTok has argued Montana's ban violates the company's First Amendment rights and the free speech rights of its users. Montana argues the state has the authority to regulate the app to protect Montanans and has asked the law be allowed to go into effect as the case moves forward. For today's archive episode, I picked an episode from August 12, 2020, in which Bobby Chesney sat down with Sheena Chestnut Greitens and Ronald Debert to talk about former President Donald Trump's executive orders aimed at banning TikTok and WeChat from operating in the United States. They also discussed the larger U.S.-China relationship and technology competition between the two countries. I'm Professor Bobby Chesney from the University of Texas at Austin, as well as Lawfare and the National Security Law Podcast. This is the Lawfare Podcast, August 12th, 2020. I sat down with Dr. Sheena Chestnut Grydens and Dr. Ron Viebert to discuss President Trump's decision to sanction TikTok and WeChat. Dr. Grydens is an associate professor at the LBJ School of Public Affairs here at UT Austin and a faculty affiliate at the Strauss Center and the Clement Center at UT. Her work focuses on East Asia, American national security, authoritarian politics, and foreign policy. Dr. Diebert is a professor of political science and the founder and director of the Citizen Lab at the University of Toronto's Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. The Citizen Lab undertakes interdisciplinary research on digital security issues that arise out of human rights concerns. In addition to the executive orders concerning TikTok and WeChat, we also discuss the larger U.S.-China relationship and the role of technology competition in that space. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 12th. Trump takes aim at TikTok and WeChat. It's hard to imagine two people I'd, I'd prefer to have in conversation on this, so I'm very excited you both agreed to do it. Sheena, I'd like to start with you by asking you to sketch for us the bigger picture of U.S.-Chinese relations as a general matter and turning towards issues specific to how each country's firms are operating in each other's markets. We'll, we'll get to the WeChat and TikTok specific stuff in just a moment. 
Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think what we're seeing right now is an unusually tense moment in U.S.-China relations um, and the, the potential to have a watershed or turning point moment in that relationship of the kind that we really haven't seen since the 1970s. And what I see right now are three big trends that are all coming together, again, in a, a way that, that hasn't happened a lot in previous administrations or, or previous political periods. And those three trends are basically what I would describe as follows. One is that as China has grown in power and global influence, um, we have also seen a switch, especially under Xi Jinping's leadership, toward much more assertive, even aggressive foreign policy on any number of fronts. So China is engaged in some kind of sort of pushing the envelope or trying to revise the status quo in multiple places around the world right now, whether that's the South China Sea, um, the East China Sea, the Tenkaku Diaoyu Islands, which are, are a ter territorial dispute with Japan. We've seen a marked change in Chinese behavior in Xinjiang with a sort of collective detention and collective repression policy that really undermines a lot of the sort of previous promises of cultural autonomy that were given to China's uh, Turkic Muslim inhabitants. Um, we've seen expansion of maritime and now military activity throughout the South China Sea, um, as well as earlier this year, a serious confrontation with India in the Himalayas along the disputed Chinese-Indian border. Um, and then we're also witnessing pretty dramatic changes in Hong Kong, where the one country, two systems is under a really unprecedented threat that, of the kind that we haven't seen since the 1997 handover. So, so that's really the first element of this is, is a change on any number of fronts in China's engagement and its, its patterns of engagement with the outside world. You know, I think the second trend that we see is that there's often a sort of cyclical uptick in the discussion or about a China threat or um, this what I would call tough on China talk that is commonly associated with um, American campaign cycles. And so on the U.S. side, we're seeing, you know, there's there's a sort of habitual pattern where electoral campaigns tend to produce both in the, the, the Congress, so the, the legislative side and the executive branch, more of this, we need to be tough on China rhetoric. But what I think makes this a little bit different is the combination of the changes in China's behavior and a set of views within the Trump administration that see the response to that behavior as you know, requiring a, a much more aggressive and fundamental reorientation of American policy toward China. So that you actually have people questioning whether cooperation is really in the United States interest when it comes to the US-China relationship. Um, and I would say that that change is bipartisan. But you particularly have a group of folks in the administration who are, are probably most concerned with the, the security and the economic implications um, and are looking at pretty radically revising a relationship that, that has existed with some continuity since China's reform and opening and Nixon's visit to China in the early 1970s. So, so 
you know, that relationship has always been described as a mix of competition and cooperation. And I can't remember a time uh, observing U.S.-China relations when I've seen the competition and even confrontational elements so heavily emphasized and present at really at the forefront of not just the security relationship, but also the economic and in some cases the, the educational or the people to people relationship as, as well. And, you know, I think what we've seen on the technology front, including these latest executive orders, is that technology is an issue where the United States, in particular this administration, sees changes and perceives threats from China's own evolving behavior and also feels the need to take an, an even a harder line than some previous administrations might have done. So I think that what you're seeing is that technology has become a real focal point for this deepening confrontation. Um, and that's why we see so many issues about technology and surveillance that are in the news, because they, they sort of sum up this whole range of, of complex issues that comprise the U.S.-China relationship. Thank you so much for that. Ron, against that backdrop, I wanted to ask you to weigh in with introductions of these two particular Chinese firms, Tencent, which operates WeChat, and ByteDance, which gives us TikTok. Can you talk about what the entities, the larger corporate entities are, what, what role WeChat plays in, in Chinese life in particular and, and for the larger Chinese-speaking diaspora and, and others around the, around the world. And then with ByteDance, obviously TikTok's not in the Chinese market as such, but if you could kind of unpack how all of that relates. Sure. So that's very helpful, by the way, Sheena. It's, it's good to hear that uh, larger context. And I guess, you know, to situate those particular questions, I'd also take a bit of a step back and, and put those companies in the broader context of China's overarching information control regime, which I've studied closely over like well over two decades now. And it's interesting to reflect going back to the late 1990s, everyone assumed that China would have a very difficult time controlling information around internet communications. And now I think uh, they've shown quite an adaptable model that, that seems to work quite well. So contrary to a lot of people's perception about how information control takes place in China, a lot of it is passed down to companies like uh, WeChat and, and other companies to police their users. And most of the censorship uh, that we've documented at Citizen Lab, we find uh, varies considerably, not only between different uh, companies, but within different industry segments. So, uh, for example, we reverse engineered thousands of video gaming and live streaming applications and basically looked inside the applications for the actual keywords that were used to trigger censorship and surveillance and found that there's very little overlap among them, um, which is quite ingenious. So um, the system of information control in China is not monolithic. And it's not even, I would go so far as to say, directed very closely in a fine-grained fashion by the Communist Party, by the central government. Instead, there is a kind of climate uh, that's created and maybe some broad directives are passed down occasionally. It's a bit of a mystery as to how that all takes place. Instead, 
uh, there's a system of intermediary liability. So the companies are required by law to undertake censorship and surveillance of their users on their platform. And that varies considerably across industries and across platforms. Uh, we've looked at WeChat uh, very closely. We haven't done as much work on, on TikTok, although we're starting to, to look into that as well. Um, but in WeChat, it's quite interesting. So first of all, they segment their users. Domestic users are treated differently than international users. Internationally registered WeChat accounts are not subject to censorship. China registered accounts are. So if you um, send a message to someone over WeChat and it contains uh, whatever politically sensitive topic of the day might be censored, it simply does not appear on the other chat client. Uh, and there's no notice given to either the sender or the recipient. So you have no idea that something is withheld from you. The overall system lacks um, transparency and, and accountability. In terms of surveillance, it's quite interesting as well. So China has a very broad uh, cybersecurity law that requires companies to cooperate with uh, public security agencies, hand over customer data that they handle upon request without anything even remotely close to a kind of independent, you know, lawful access, judicial warrant type of procedure. And this is where a lot of the concerns arise when people look at that, those, those platforms in terms of user privacy and security. Um, we don't know uh, exactly when or how often the Chinese government exercises that prerogative, but it certainly can. And so there's a big question mark as to how much of user data is under surveillance. Of course, China also has a very sophisticated signals intelligence capacity. So one would assume that they're exercising that prerogative in some manner, uh, much like other great powers do. Uh, recently, we did a report where we looked at uh, surveillance of international registered WeChat users. As I said before, we have shown that they are not subject to censorship in the same manner as China registered users are. But it was a bit of a question mark for us as to whether they were also under surveillance. And a bit to our surprise, uh, we found out that in fact they are. Um, so we conducted some experiments uh, that allowed us to see when images or files were sent between WeChat users who are registered outside of mainland China, the messages would be monitored and then flagged and added to a algorithm that is then used to refine censorship on China users of the platform, which is something that we had never seen before and affirms that when you're using WeChat outside of the country, uh, you're under surveillance. Now, I think the, the big issue, and this kind of reflects on, on what Sheena was saying earlier, is this is no longer a mainland China issue. There are hundreds of millions of people who use both platforms outside of mainland China uh, the technology is obviously very popular, uh, especially with younger people. And um, indeed, there's you know a whole spectrum of technologies across the information infrastructure, most notably 5G, uh, where Chinese companies are making inroads and thus raising the type of concerns that we're talking about today. 
Ron, let me ask you a little bit about other things WeChat does besides being a platform for, well, messaging back and forth. Uh, my understanding is that it, it plays a, a far broader role, especially on daily digital life within China. Can you shed some light on that? So yeah, WeChat is, you know, when, when China started out, it banned a lot of popular Western social media applications in, in part for concerns out of the type of communications that would take place through them, but also obviously in part as part of a national protectionist regime to try to build up a local capacity. And so WeChat is not quite an analog to something that we find uh, with respect to competitors in the West whether it's Twitter or Facebook or whatever, it's a broad platform that includes a lot of different functionality. And so you can make uh, payments through WeChat, for example, and um, it, it's connected to uh, all sorts of other transactions. So it's a multi-purpose, multi-platform uh, application. And what's interesting about that, I think, is, is um, China has uh, simultaneously embarked on a quite ambitious data collection and ranking program called the social credit system, which aims to integrate data from all sorts of transactions, like the ones that WeChat provides, to evaluate and rank citizens' trustworthiness, uh, which sounds about as Orwellian as it seems. It's not perfect. It's incomplete. It varies across uh, regions in China, um, but it's certainly something that, that's uh, disturbing. To, to myself and a lot of outside observers. Well, you mentioned something there that caught my attention. And I think this is probably obvious to you and to many listeners, but not to everyone. Uh, can you comment on the extent to which American companies like Facebook or Twitter that are somewhat analogous and in the same space as a WeChat are allowed to operate in China in the first place? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And it's gone... The landscape has shifted over time and evolved. So the case that I was most familiar with and in some ways connected to uh, was when uh, Google ceased operations in China after Operation Aurora, a cyber espionage attack coming from China, um, compromised uh, their Google's internal networks. But even prior to, to them departing the market, they were having really difficult challenges. And this is Similar to what I understand businesses, firms from the West have in general operating in China because of the, the political economy, the environment, the business government relations that you have to navigate can be quite challenging. But then added on top of that, you have this burden uh, where you have to comply with local laws, which in China violate human rights. And, and so uh, this puts companies in a very difficult pos position of having to either comply with these local laws and violate principles, and in some cases, laws that, that they have to operate in within their own jurisdictions, or cast aside a growing, highly lucrative market. So it's a very difficult business decision. Sheena, do you want to add anything on that? Yeah, I mean, maybe just one one short but I think important point to to realize and to bring into the discussion is that because China has this regime of censorship, not just the Great Firewall, but this whole architecture of information control that Ron just described, the opportunities for Chinese 
people, residents to connect with people outside of China, even if that's a family member or a Chinese student studying overseas, you either have to have a, a VPN to use something like Facebook or or you know one of these Western-based, U.S.-based technologies like Ron was talking about, um, or you have to use an, an app that is allowed in uh, allowed to operate in China. And so, one of the things I think it's important to know about WeChat in particular is that because there was this firewall as kind of a catch-all phrase for the whole system of tools that China uses, you know, WeChat was one of, rather than using um, Facebook or um, other messaging apps that, that you and I might think of sitting here in North America or in Texas, um, WeChat became one of the most popular ways for the members of the Chinese diaspora or overseas Chinese communities, both to communicate with each other and also to uh, to communicate with family back home or to send payments back and forth, do the, that whole range of, of functions. But I think that's, I think that's really uh, an important piece if we think about what the second or order effects of um, the, the executive order might be. So we can you know, well, we can come, I know you're going to come back to that a little bit later, but but just wanted to put out there that that's one of the things that's unique about WeChat's role in the environment that Ron was just describing. Definitely. Well, so at a certain point, both WeChat and TikTok began to draw very negative attention from both U.S. policymakers and politicians. Sheena, can you shed some light on on how that story began to evolve? Was was the growing turmoil in Hong Kong a key part of that? What else was at work, et cetera? You know, I think there was a lot of attention to what was happening in Hong Kong and the pressure, surveillance and pressure that was being placed on activists there. Um, but we've also seen a, a range of stories being reported by a, almost every, I think, major U.S. media outlet um, talking about the difficulty, for example, of trying to communicate with family if you are a Tibetan who's left China or, you know, a Uyghur Muslim who has um, who has left and who's concerned about family back home. You're not comfortable using WeChat because of the surveillance functions. Um, you might not be comfortable or able to make a phone call. Um, so really, what are what are your options for communicating? And so I, th- I think we've seen a lot more attention to China's willingness to put pressure on its diaspora politically. And again, this is, you know, I think as I think about, you know, what the context for for the EO, um, you know, two of the features that we've seen under Xi Jinping are this push not just to sort of preempt or address problems when they first emerge, but actually to prevent them from emerging at all. And that prevention requires an extraordinary amount of information, and it requires you to act before people often have actually done anything problematic. Um, And so I think, you know, without understanding how much that bar has shifted in China, um, it's a little bit hard to understand how the treatment of um, Chinese diaspora populations or groups outside of China has changed. And the other thing is that Xi Jinping has this this theory that he's proposed about comprehensive security that really blurs the boundaries between internal and external security. And so you see people, major figures at the top levels of the CCP, talking about how they don't 
treat foreign policy as sort of a separate foreign policy issue, but really view it through the prism of how might this impact the hold of the CCP on power and and sort of the CCP's own regime security at home. And that's not a way that we in a two-party democracy here in the United States are used to thinking about foreign policy questions at least I think by and large. We don't view it through primarily through the prism of how it might affect a single party regime's hold on on power. Um, But that's very much the prism through which the CCP views foreign policy, I would argue, you know, even more so in the last five years than it it did previously. Um, And so again, the result has been things like what we've seen in Hong Kong, where there's this assertion in the new national security law of pretty broad extraterritorial prerogative. Um, And we've certainly seen that the Chinese party state has been comfortable using what I would call relational repression and calling dissidents or people overseas who are doing things they don't like or who they want to come home for reason A, B, C, or D. And, and, you know, saying we're sitting here with your son or your grandmother and you really need to come home so you don't get your grandmother in trouble. And so the idea that that the, the party state has some sort of authority over people who are outside China's borders, I think has, has cropped up in a whole bunch of different parts of the U.S.-China relationship recently. The Confucius Institute, Chinese student associations on campuses um, are two that I know academia and universities have been grappling with. But, you know, now we also see it in in. The, the tech world as well, um, because technology provides one of the, the tools for some of this relational repression to be projected outside of, of China's borders. So I think that's, the, that's this really important backdrop is the last couple years of, of really good investigative reporting and research like the, the, the analyses that Citizens Lab has done. Um, But then I think you also have to understand that, you know, in the first quarter or the first half of 2020, um, the number of subscriptions to WeChat and TikTok went way, way up. And some of that was COVID driven. Um, People at home looking for entertainment. TikTok is, you know, I don't. I don't have it, but um, but I've watched um, friends scroll through it, and it is it is sort of ridiculously mesmerizing in a very strange way. And so I think that huge uptick in market growth at precisely the moment when you have elevated U.S.-China tensions over the coronavirus, also then I, my sense, and again I, I don't I can't speak for anybody in the administration or sort of you know, read their minds in terms of what exactly triggered their um, their concern. But my sense was that it's this really rapid uptick, knowing the context of how these apps have been used with other groups, particularly the Chinese diaspora and uh, minority groups in, in China. And then this sort of explosive growth in the popularity of these apps in the U.S., at a moment when the relationship is, you know, really spiraling downwards. I think all of those things coming together get you to this this most recent EO. I will say a lot of China watchers that I'm in conversation with expected TikTok and were a little bit more surprised about WeChat just because the the focus had been sort of on WeChat front and center. And because WeChat serves other other functions, um, I think there was a 
a different conversation. But obviously Ron's work and the work at Citizen Lab has shown that there are real reasons to be concerned about WeChat. And if you're going to tackle something like TikTok, not taking any action against WeChat, and, you know, doesn't make it, it, Bobby, as you've pointed out, doesn't doesn't make a whole lot of sense from the administration's standpoint. So, so I think that's really where we get to to bring us up to you know last week. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story. 
that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. That's great and so helpful. Thank you. And I think you're right that the uh, the idea that an action would be taken against TikTok and not against WeChat once you consider work such as what Citizen Lab has done, it begins to look a little, well, shall we say, incomplete. So we should we should put on the table exactly what the action was that occurred this past week. So let me do that relatively quickly. And, and first, I'll mention that there, there are really two different U.S. government legal regimes that are an issue here. One of them was in play already for some time, and that's the so-called CFIUS system. That's an acronym. The Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States is a formal U.S. investment review process that examines corporate transactions, by and large. There are other things now as well as corporate transactions, but the basic idea is one firm is going to maybe acquire another, and there may be national security implications for the U.S. government. And so the committee reviews and, and considers what the downstream effects might be, and, and has the authority uh, to block the transaction, to, to preclude it from taking place, or to put contingencies and conditions on it. In the case of TikTok, ByteDance had already acquired the company that it rebranded as TikTok. It originally was called Musical.ly. Both of these were Chinese firms, but Musical.ly was especially active in the U.S. market, uh, just as TikTok is today. And that deal had already gone down, but CFIUS review can be retroactive. And at some point, the mounting concerns that, Sheena, you just described so well with respect to TikTok uh, led to a retroactive or retrospective, rather, uh, CFIUS review that's still ongoing, as far as I know. It has not yet resolved. Looking back at the ByteDance acquisition of Musical.ly, which becomes TikTok. And when it, over the past two weeks, suddenly there was a surge of speculation about U.S. government action. Initially, people were focused on the possibility that at long last, CFIUS would produce its result. It might, might purport to require ByteDance to, to divest itself, at least of the U.S. operations of what is now TikTok. But as many of us observed when the speculation began, that CFIUS regime isn't the only relevant regime 
when it comes to international sanctions, the bread and butter is IEPA, and that's an acronym too. That's the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. This is basically a framework we've had since about the 1970s, where Congress has pre-delegated to the executive branch the ability under certain conditions to impose either full-fledged embargoes or highly targeted narrow sanctions against foreign entities. And they could be foreign countries, it could be foreign organizations, as in this case, it could be foreign individuals. And so you want to think of it this way. IEPA requires a predicate action, but it's not a particularly difficult one for the president to perform. It requires a public proclamation of a national emergency on some particular topic. And this often leads to people wondering, can the courts second guess that declaration? You know, this was a topic that came up a lot, for example, with respect to uh, a national emergency declaration involving the southern border a couple of years ago. And the short answer is the courts are extremely unlikely to second guess those determinations. So the president has a ton of discretion here. That's step one. It, it sort of turns on the power. It turns on the power switch, but it doesn't mean anything then happens under IEPA. You have to then have a second action. The president needs to issue an order under IEPA using those powers that either picks out a particular entity to be sanctioned and states what the sanction is, or as more frequently occurs, sets up a, a framework for sanctions and delegates to usually the Treasury Department um, the task of then, under the general heading of what the president described, going out and making, as the cases arise, particular sanction determinations. Against that backdrop, it happens that in 2019, the Trump administration issued an, a national emergency declaration involving uh, threats to the supply chain for information and communication technology and services. And this, this was all about Huawei and ZTE and the sort of the supply chain concerns that are bound up in the build out of 5G and other communication infrastructures and this growing realization that, that Chinese firms were playing a big role in this and growing concern about what the implications might be in terms of the access that provides to the Chinese Communist Party to, to potentially leverage and exploit these kinds of capabilities that their firms might, might have. And the 2019 IEPA sanction framework was one of these standing frameworks that then would require a lot of further action um, where the Secretary of Commerce, I believe in this case, was tasked to consult with others to kind of flesh out how the framework would work in practice. And then eventually you would start getting a stream of sanctioned entities under this general heading. But we hadn't had anything like that yet. So I think the right way to understand what ends up happening last week is that we were close to having a, a very on-point IEPA framework system that wasn't quite completely built out in terms of the regulations that the Commerce Department is, is in the process of finalizing. Uh, but the president was ready to act president didn't want to simply wait for the CFIUS process to run its course. Maybe that's because of uh, uncertainty about when it would run its course. Maybe it was uncertainty about what result it might yield. Maybe it was uncertainty about whether the White House would be seen as the, the driving agent behind that, whether the president would get the credit he wanted to get. I, I don't know. But one way or another, he didn't ultimately take a CFIUS action. He couldn't take a CFIUS action last week. He took an IEPA action. And since the framework I just described wasn't fully completely built yet, 
the way to understand what he did was to single out and directly sanction both WeChat, or, or more to the point, Tencent, and um, ByteDance and TikTok in separate orders that were very closely intertwined with this 2019 order, but in, but don't necessarily reflect just how that order would work. Now, here's the the wild thing about all of it. In both cases, the sanction order is framed quite broadly. There's a lot of talk about uh, transactions, acquisitions, interactions, and, and use of these technologies and services, broadly speaking, but it, it's all rather vague what it means. And the orders themselves direct the Secretary of Commerce within 45 days, or at the 45-day mark, to clarify just what exactly, what interactions with these sanctioned entities are going to be forbidden. And by the way, the statute comes pre-wired with criminal law and other forms of liability. So it's a serious deal. You don't want to violate these sanctions. They don't take effect for 45 days. And so we're all kind of waiting to see what exactly will be off limits, what won't be. And, and it gets pretty interesting when you start thinking about the array of activities, especially for Tencent, uh, the array of activities it has and engagements it has with the U.S. market. Bobby, can I ask a quick question about that, actually? Yes, please. So I saw um, after the EO came out um, and a number of commenters were raising exactly this point about the breadth of Tencent's operations and investments in the United States beyond uh, WeChat in particular, then the LA Times got a statement from the White House saying, oh, we don't mean it to apply to Tencent, so it won't have any effect on gaming. You know, well, it it's just WeChat. Um, but the language, I mean, I'm not an attorney, and I stared at that that couple of sentences in the EO for, for a good long time trying to make heads or tails of it. Um, so the administration, at least right now, is signaling that it's not going to apply to, to Tencent more broadly. But you're saying that that's going to be at the discretion of the Commerce Secretary, and we'll find out in 42, 41 days? Right. So it's exactly as you say, there's been clear signaling from the White House that they mean to single out WeChat. Uh, and why does this matter? Let's be really clear. Tencent has tremendous investments in the U.S. economy. It's got, it's got, I think, a 5% stake in Tesla. It's got a big stake in Snap. It's got a big stake in Activision Blizzard and in a, a number of other video game platforms. It, it's all over the place. And so this has all sorts of people going crazy. You hear stories about uh, people afraid that now playing Fortnite suddenly will will become a crime. Rest assured, I'm I'm reasonably confident <laughs> Fortnite, won't, as much as some parents might like it to be, I don't think Fortnite playing will become a crime. But here's how the language in the executive order actually works. So it's worth noting that there's a, a lot of prefatory language that isn't the operational language, but the prefatory language talks about Tencent and WeChat, but then then zeroes in on WeChat and describes why. The government's concerned about it. And then the order itself is as follows. The, the following actions shall be prohibited beginning 45 days after the date of this order, dot, dot, dot. Any transaction that's related to WeChat, okay, so far narrow, by any person or with respect to any property subject to the jurisdiction of the United States, comma, with Tencent Holdings Limited or any subsidiary of that entity, as identified by the Secretary of Commerce under Section 1C of the order, which is the part that says, hey, Secretary, in 45 days, tell us exactly what you want to cover or not. So is this just 
poor drafting, which by the way is pretty inexcusable for something at this, you know, this is the major leagues. This is not a place where you expect to see such poor drafting. <laughs> is it purposefully vague in order to create strategic ambiguity where where China and Tencent, respectively, I should say the Communist Party of China, uh, the Chinese Communist Party in Tencent, are they intentionally being left to wonder, is this really going to be left just to WeChat because it does have this expander clause? Or again, is that just bad drafting? It's it's a shame if it's not intentional. If it's on purpose, then you know I'm not in a position to judge whether that's smart policy or not. But one thing's for sure, the language is written in a way that clearly leaves open the possibility that the secretary's final set of descriptions of covered transactions could be broader than WeChat. Doesn't seem like it's meant to, but but the door's not closed to that, which is, I think, uh, quite remarkable considering the stakes. Hmm. Interesting. So, Ron, is this a good idea or a bad idea? Can you give us a, a policy assessment of, of the wisdom of what's being done here? Well, I tell you, when I when I woke up and saw the executive orders, there's something that that comes to mind increasingly often for me at, at Citizen Lab is that you can't always control how your research will be received and and more importantly how it might be politicized, and it's something that we're sensitive to and we try our best to avoid. We we call it as we see it, and I, I just want to put on the table and remind everyone that. In April 2020, we published a, a research report on the security of Zoom, and there are similar features uh, to the discussion that we're having here with the case of Zoom. So we found a couple of things. One is that the encryption that they used on the platform was weak in several respects, certainly not up to the way that they were advertising it. But more relevant to our conversation is that uh, we we knew that they had operations in mainland China, back-end operations, but in our uh, tests, we observed the transmission of meeting encryption keys, the keys that are used to actually secure the meetings, were being transmitted through facilities in China in at least a couple of instances. So that report came out in April, and then a month later, we came out with our, our WeChat report, and... Um, both have been highly politicized, I would say. So when I look at this executive order, these executive orders rather, I look at it in two ways. One, I I think it's a good thing in some respects. So um, first of all, when you look at all applications, not just Zoom, not just WeChat, not even just Chinese, all applications are highly invasive by design. This is part of the personal data surveillance economy model that we live in. The data sharing that goes on among applications and platforms is largely poorly regulated and highly prone to abuse. Uh, It's not often clear with whom those platforms and applications are sharing data. And when it comes to governments accessing those data, which is a very important question, you know, governments routinely access that type of data, but in circumstances that are wildly different in terms of transparency and accountability, all governments. Um, now, China, of course, is a, is a bad model at the extreme end of the uh, spectrum because you have, you know, the only thing that is remotely close to a kind of safeguard would be really incompetence. Um, so there's no formal system of checks and balances or legal restraints around how and when the government can access that data. That's not to say they do all the time, but there's no restraint against it. So it's a very bad model. 
and we need to raise awareness about it and push back against it. The problem is this particular action I found really uh, extreme. And I think it also is difficult to untangle from other motivations that may be driving this administration, which is always difficult to decipher. Um, but I think Sheena did a great job of, of positioning this in the context of 2020 in this particular administration. Of course, there's lots of anti-Chinese rhetoric going on right now related to COVID. I see this as part of a nationalist trade protectionist agenda, which um, links to the, the question about Microsoft taking over some of the assets uh, of TikTok and the U.S. operations. So it's bound up with, uh, you know, a kind of industrial national industrial policy. But more importantly, it just seems to me that this is poorly thought out. Um, and by that, I mean, it's not clearly linked to an overall strategy. In fact, it even I would go so far as to say it contradicts longstanding U.S. strategy for cyberspace, which depends on an open and secure internet. And my fear is that other countries will look at at this type of executive action and say, you know what, we, we, this is a model we'd like to follow. And where that leads down the road is towards the eventual splintering of the internet, which is not in the long-term interests of certainly not liberal democratic countries, but I would argue for the planet as a whole. And, and so that's where my uh, biggest concern is with this. It seems extreme and tempestuous, not really uh, thought through carefully in terms of how it connects to an overall strategy. Reaction, Sheena? Yeah, sure, a couple. Um, I'm, I think, you know, um, this is an administration that seems to place a pretty high value on political theater. And political theater, not just political theater itself, but sort of the use of it to generate chaos or ambiguity that they then believe will turn into leverage. That's a pattern that that I would describe. Um, and if you you know if you go back and look at the early days of this White House, um, you know some of what Steve Bannon had to say talks about that as a, as a conscious policy. And so I think you know some of it may be a um, a bit of a holdover in the approach to you know dealing with certain challenges or a, po a policy style, if you will. And then. Um, you know, beyond that, is this a, you know, obviously ByteDance is, is negotiating with Microsoft right now. And so is this, you know, there's been speculation that maybe this could be designed to weaken their negotiating position. Um, maybe it's that Trump is, you know, President Trump is personally mad at TikTok because of campaign issues or videos <laughs> that have been, you know, used to, to mock him. There was that Tulsa incident with uh, so many people on TikTok uh, claiming spots for his Tulsa rally who had absolutely no intention of showing up there. Right. I mean, and, and look, like I'm a, I'm a political scientist, right? I am not a psychologist, let alone a clairvoyant. So I have no idea, again, you know, what exactly, what, what combination of factors is, is in the minds of the key decision makers in the White House. Um, or if, or if Bobby, you're right, that this um, lack of clarity was an issue with the, you know, the speed of, of drafting or the, the drafting process. I think at least, you know, those are a couple of different possibilities for, for what could be going on here. You know, one of the biggest impacts that I see, and again, this is more, um, so, so TikTok is a sort of smaller subsidiary. There's this process with Microsoft where, you know, TikTok could possibly continue to operate in a different form or structure, 
there really isn't a similar path um, available for, for WeChat. And, and WeChat, I also think, has a more significant impact on, on U.S.-China relations, right? Because there, so there's a, there's a domestic version of TikTok that is going to keep going in China no matter what. Um, and those are really kind of separate um, wor- media worlds in some ways. Um, WeChat is the opposite. It's sort of connective. And so the administration has talked about in a lot of its own, it, its sort of major policy speeches, if you look at what, you know, Vice President Pence or Secretary Pompeo have said, you know, that they are competing with the Chinese government, that they're very critical of the Chinese Communist Party. But they've tried to balance that with these messages about being open and friendly toward the Chinese people. Even if you think about, for example, um, Matt Pottinger earlier this year gave remarks in Chinese from the White House talking about the sort of the, you know, the, the Chinese people. Again, I think this is aimed at trying to connect more directly with a, a Chinese, Chinese audience outside of the framework that's structured by the CCP. Whether or not that's successful is a separate question. But, you know, I think what's happening here is that you're seeing an emerging tension between two of the administration's own goals, right? It has two goals and they're actually in conflict in this EO Um, because cutting off WeChat or people's ability to use WeChat in the United States does cut back on surveillance. It cuts back on censorship. It cuts back on, um, you know, the sort of coercive reach of the CCP. But it also cuts off the ability of a lot of Americans, Chinese Americans, scholars in the United States, students coming to, from China to study at American universities, um, their ability to communicate in a way that, yes, is, is surveilled and maybe watched and in some cases censored by the Chinese Communist Party. But there's still a lot of interpersonal communication happening there and relationships that might be fraught, people might be careful, but... There are relationships that are formed and maintained through WeChat that are going to be much harder because there just isn't an obvious alternative for people who want to to continue that kind of connection. And again, that's, you know, there's this quote about Silicon Valley engineers recently in the New York Times, but it's not just that. It's students in China who want to communicate with people in the U.S., people who have grandparents in China who want to do video chatting um, so that they can, you know, see their grandchildren. Um, there's this whole range of sort of people-to-people connections. And severing the, the WeChat bridge, I think, is it, it's hard to see how that doesn't have a pretty serious deleterious effect on those people-to-people connections. So I think the real question is, what's the alternative, right? And and my concern with this EO is is that there doesn't seem to be a good alternative for people in China who want to make those outside connections, given the nature of China's technological infrastructure and its information control system. And so I think the question is, you know, yes, we we don't want people to be to communicate under conditions of surveillance, censorship, and coercion. But right now, what we're doing is making it harder for them to communicate at all. And I would much prefer, rather than the debate being ban, no ban, to see the United States offering some kind of proactive alternative. Um, I don't know exactly what that would be. I might defer to, you know, more tech, teched up folks than I am um, to offer some some ideas. But I think also the the United States, um, this is sort of like putting a Band-Aid on a, a you know much a much bigger issue 
So the United States needs, I think, fundamentally a much more systematic policy on how to deal with these challenges posed by Chinese technology and surveillance technology in particular, right? So, so I work a lot on the export of other Chinese surveillance technologies, and the United States really hasn't been aggressively involved in shaping the international regulatory environment. Chinese companies, and to a certain extent, the Chinese party state, have played a much more active global leadership role. So it seems to me, you know, the United States faces these challenges about data exfiltration and the CCP's sort of approach to information management, um, not just with these two apps. Yeah, they're the ones on our radar, but TikTok wasn't really on our radar last year. That suggests to me that next year it might be a different app. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Ron, what do you think? Well, it's interesting when Sheena mentions alternatives, you know, what would be something that the U.S. government might have done? My thoughts immediately go to an unfortunate decision that was made recently to basically purge something called the Open Technology Fund that the Trump administration undertook. Um, for those who don't know, the Open Technology Fund, uh, which operates um, as, as part of the, the agencies that that um, manage international broadcasting and media for the U.S. government, this particular uh, organization has been really instrumental in promoting and developing a community of, of advocates and researchers around the world, uh, putting forward precisely what, what Sheena was saying, an alternative, developing secure communications tools that help circumvent uh, internet censorship, like, for example, Tor, and Siphon and others uh, like that. And uh, of course, the Open Technology Fund, unfortunately, was completely purged, much to my regret and, and to many others as well. So, you know, I just find that ironic. And then when you think about some of the repercussions, I think about the Global South in particular. Um, so I was speaking with a, a student of mine, Moses Karanja, recently, who's a Kenyan by birth, and he was describing to me what some of the impact of these executive orders might be in the African region. So in Africa, you have an interesting kind of bifurcated multi-platform model. So a lot of people use Western software, very popular there, Uber, Facebook, etc. But they use Eastern, for lack of a better term, hardware, cheap Chinese, Vietnamese, Korean made uh, phones and, and devices. And what this may do is push them to make a choice. And I think people being the way they are, uh, they'll likely go for convenience and affordability, which might push them towards, for lack of a, a better term, a China model of information control when it comes to the technologies that they're using. And this is why I think, you know, to me, it just wasn't well thought out in terms of a larger strategy. It certainly wasn't coordinated with U.S. allies. Um, there's a, a coalition of countries called the Freedom Online Coalition, of which Canada, United States, UK, many other countries are a part. I think it would have made much more sense to think about ways that this could have been some kind of response could have been properly coordinated among that group of countries. And unfortunately, it wasn't. Sheena, any concluding thoughts as we as we close out the hour? Yeah, just to say that I, I agree with Ron that I think the multilateral coordination on this is really important for the kind of challenge that, that we're seeing. I do think that to do that, the United States needs a more coordinated and systematic policy on Chinese technology and surveillance technology. Data exfiltration and information collection 
by China, by Chinese companies that's then related to the party state or could be, um, is a much broader challenge than these two specific companies. Um, and so I think, you know, not only does the United States itself need an interagency coordinated strategy, but um, you know, the most effective strategy is one that's going to be developed in consultation with partners in Europe, in Asia, in Africa, um, all of whom have an interest in preserving a free and open internet that is not cut off by United States executive order, but also not subject to the kind of surveillance and censorship that we've seen um, used in WeChat and some other Chinese technology products. So, you know, I really, I think that this needs to be a much bigger and broader conversation about creating an alternative that's compatible with privacy, with security, and with liberal democracy, ultimately. Well said. And so we'll end there at the top of the hour. And in about 42 days, we should know, A, has Microsoft acquired TikTok to the delight of teenagers across the nation? B, have we got clarity as to whether any aspect of Tencent beyond WeChat will be covered uh, by the sanctions? And, and C, Will there be an off-ramp for WeChat? There is there is a potential off-ramp for TikTok. It's not remotely obvious why or how there be a sale of WeChat's U.S. operations or whether that could even work. So uh, I think that signifies that we have much more yet to be determined about this story. Sheena, Ron, thank you so much for being on the Lawfare podcast. Thank you very much, Bobby. Thanks, Sheena. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please share the Lawfare Podcast. Give us a five-star review on iTunes. Go to thelawfarestore.com for brand new Lawfare pins, lanyards, t-shirts, socks. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer is Zachary Frank of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed, as always, by Sophia Yan. And as always, thank you for listening.